this problem has been uh, raised uh, times and again, and I, to my knowledge, has never found a satisfactory answer. Even though you find plenty of interesting answers, there is not one answer that satisfied everyone. But everybody would agree that unless we, <laughs> unless we really think that animals and ourselves are zombie machines, that we're dealing with subjects. Nevertheless, we only know how to study them scientifically as if they weren't subjects. In a society in which the extreme objectification, that is the condition of possibility of science, would not have been invented and uh, imposed on, on many communities, then phenology would have been a matter of course. When it comes to mind or consciousness, we neuroscientists often ask, how does the brain generate or produce consciousness? But then I start asking whether it does. But this is a taboo question. This is Brain Inspired. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul. Hope you're doing well. On this episode, we're taking a step back, you could say, and discussing phenomenology, which in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy is defined as the study of structures of consciousness as experienced from the first-person point of view. One of the things phenomenology reminds us of in science is that all of our measurements and observations are necessarily experienced by us through our personal perceptions. So in a strong sense, our interpretation of the world and of our scientific findings begins with our first-person experiences, however much we want to claim that what we're describing and explaining is objective and not dependent on us as living, experiencing beings. Michel Bitbull is an ex-physicist turned philosopher of science. He's the director of research at CNRS, which is the Centre National de la Recherche Scientifique. I'm sure I butchered that, so apologies. And he has written extensively about how the phenomenological perspective resolves many of the paradoxes of quantum mechanics that arise when we treat quantum mechanics as an interpretation of what's real. Later, he studied with Francisco Varela, who championed the phenomenological approach in the life sciences. And Michel continues to apply the phenomenological approach to the philosophy of mind. Alex Gomez Marin runs the Behavior of Organisms Lab at the Instituto de Neurociencias in Alicante. Alex is also an ex-physicist uh, who turned to biology and to neuroscience, and he has come to appreciate the phenomenological approach. So we discuss phenomenology itself, how both Michel and Alex came to appreciate it, some of the ways it helps us interpret quantum mechanics and science in general, what role it has to play, as perhaps a complement to the training many of us have received to perform objective science. And we discuss a lot more. Show notes are at braininspired.co slash podcast slash 136. If you value these kinds of conversations, consider supporting the podcast through Patreon. Thank you to my Patreon supporters. Or if you want something that goes a little deeper, consider signing up for my Neuro AI course, all about the conceptual foundations of the intersection of neuroscience and AI, which is now available through the website whenever it strikes your fancy to check it out. 
You can go to braininspired.co to learn more about that. Okay, I hope you enjoy the discussion. I always have trouble uh, figuring out where to start in these kinds of conversations. And I think that this is the most trouble I've had speaking with, with both of you. So first of all, welcome, Michelle. Welcome, Alex. And thanks for being here. Uh, thank you. That's, that's a promising thank start. You. <laughs> <laughs> but I, uh, th- there's so much that we can talk about. I, I thought maybe a, a good place to start would be what's called the blind spot of scientific endeavors. Would you guys agree? Would that be a good place to start? And if so, Michelle, would you want to describe the blind spot? And then Alex, you can correct Michelle, of course. <laughs> mm, okay. So, I, in fact, I have a lot to say about the blind spot. <laughs> yeah. Even though precisely because it cannot be seen by definition, by construction, it is uh, the, the item which, which uh, is completely absent from the visual field and yet is absolutely crucial. And uh, the fact that it is missing uh, can uh, trigger havoc in, in the whole of knowledge, you know. Okay, so what is this uh, blind spot after all? And, and is it something um, new in, in the history of knowledge? First of all, I would like to say that it's by no means new. It's, it is um, known at least from the time of ancient India, you know, from the time of the Upanishad, hmm. or maybe even earlier. And uh, I like to quote a certain sentence from one of the, of the uh, oldest Upanishad, in which it is said, it is not seen, but it is the seer. It is not heard, but it is the hearer. It is not felt, but it is the one who feels. So um, the idea is very simple. What is missing from our visual field, as Wittgenstein would have it, it's no, nothing else than the eye itself. Okay, the eye cannot be see, cannot be seen in the visual field. Um, our body is presupposed by any action we can take in a laboratory, but we don't care f- for it. And even deeper, our experience is that through which everything is given and shown to us, but we don't see it. We don't even bother uh, about it. So um, there is something, something which is not a thing from which everything is known and is ignored by knowledge because the from which cannot be seen by the on on the screen of the objects of knowledge the from which any object is seen known uh, appreciated cannot be known by itself it can can be known only by a sort of um, uh, you know deduction in the reverse way namely from the known to the source of knowledge and this, I think, was uh, said very beautifully by uh, Immanuel Kant, the famous uh, German philosopher of the 18th century. Uh, you know, he was confronted with uh, what he called speculative metaphysics, in which um, people try to get through appearances, 
through phenomena to uh, identify what is really real, what is more real than appearances, what is behind appearances. But when they do that, they use a tool of their mind called reason. They deduce things and they try to elaborate a theory about what is hidden behind the appearances from their knowledge of appearances. Okay, they do that, but usually they do that with little success. <laughs> Metaphysics has always been very difficult to, to um, carry on. And Kant says, oh, it's very simple why uh, you have so little success. It's because you use your reason to get through appearances to reality, but you don't even try to uh, question your own reason. You don't reflect on your own reason. You use it, you use it as if it were a, a window, a transparent window through which you can see reality, and you, you don't really try to set the conditions for re your reason to be able to go through appearances to reality. Since you don't know your reason, since you don't bother about this condition of possibility, then of course you, you are going astray. So reason here was the blind spot of metaphysical knowledge according to Kant. Okay, so maybe I can stop here because I can uh, I could uh, <laughs> sure. speak for hours about that and um, give uh, Alex the opportunity to ask questions about this. When I talk when I talk to Michelle and also today, I feel like going cycling and uh, and I just need to be drafting behind him because you know <laughs> he's just. Um, so knowledgeable about those things. Maybe I'll, I'll just rephrase what Michelle said in, in my own way of putting it. Um, so to me, the blind spot, well, it's like a fractal. That, that's like a fractal st structure of blind spots. There are many, Michelle mentioned many, but to me, the main one is lived experience. And that's very relevant to neuroscience. And so it's that very simple idea that we don't see the very thing that allows us to see. And well, but this is not very popular, right? Because to begin with, as Michelle just said, it's not new. Uh, so where's the novelty? <laughs> the editor may ask, but also it's somewhat obvious, although non-trivial, and it's it's hidden in plain sight. So it has all these qualities of of something that we would systematically miss. Um, the problem that I see with it is that well, we may not see it, but if, you, if we choose to ignore it or deny it the moment we're confronted with it, then it's a whole different problem. And, and this has happened. We can talk about, I mean, this has to do with the foundations of, of science and it has happened in quantum mechanics and in Godel's uh, um, theorem and also today in consciousness studies. So it's like the replicas of this, of this awareness that there's something very fundamental that we're taking for granted and systematically missing. And well, I think our effort is to just say it again, just say again that there's something upon which everything is based 
And then not only we forget about it, that we we even try to explain it away. So it's a very strange situation to talk about the blind spot because of what we do with it. And let me just add, add one more thing. We can talk about the blind spot with respect to the scientific worldview. Um, I'm going to already start putting the isms out, but it's it's even worse within the mechanistic reductionist materialist doctrine because other approaches to science and philosophy may be more sympathetic to acknowledging that there is a blind spot, even if we fail um, to do justice to it, as Michelle was saying. Since you mentioned neuroscience and this podcast is focused a lot on on neuroscience, you know, learning more about the blind spot, I, one notion is that uh, as scientists, we go on about our business completely unaware of this fact. But then I also have a then I have to question my own history and how I, you know, my intellectual thoughts have developed. Uh, and another way to approach it is to say, well, like you said, Alex, it's obvious and that it's implicit and assumed by many scientists, um, what, whatever field of study they're in, uh, whether they explicitly acknowledge it or not. Um, and so you, you talked about the novelty, and, and I don't know if you've had uh, editors comment on this. It sounds like maybe you have with manuscripts. Where's the novelty? But is how much of it, of it do you think is sort of implicit and not so much explained away, but just implicit uh, as if it's background knowledge for all of us? Do you think in in uh, the in the world of researchers and how much we're ignorant of it or the field is ignorant of it? Well, uh, the way I like to put it, and I don't want to start saying we should be doing this or we're doing this wrong, but at least we do a kind of a magic trick, sleight of hand. I like to put it this, in this way. Neuroscience is usually about having two subjects, starting with two subjects and ending, ending very quickly with one object. So it's a very strange trick. Let's say myself and a mouse, or myself and the human subject I'm studying, like we are both living-minded organisms, um, but very quickly the animal is treated as an object that I'll study, and the scientist pretends he or she is not there. So, in a way, we're trained to do that. I call it the kind of the yoga of objectivity. We're we're, we're like very, very precise swords. Like virtually all our training is to be able to do to, to excel at doing that. But here we are, there's a moment where you realize, especially in the life and mind sciences, you realize that perhaps we're missing something really fundamental. And so there's a, there's a process of untraining and that's unlearning maybe. And that's why I started to draw on phenomenology uh, as per, perhaps Michel will explain later because he really knows phenomenology. I'm, I'm really a, <laughs> a beginner student of it. But I realized that there's this thing missing. And so how can, how can we bring it back uh, um, it's it's a whole new process of learning uh, another yoga, you could say, not of objectivity, but of subjectivity. But of course, that easily falls into dualities, the objective, the subjective, the isms. And then, because in neuroscientists, at least, we need to publish paper, write grants, and, and so on. Um, there's no time for this anymore, so we're back to square one. But, but everybody would agree that unless we <laughs> unless we really think that animals and ourselves are zombie machines that we're dealing with subjects. Nevertheless, we only know how to study them scientifically as if they weren't subjects. And, and so that, there's kind of a intersubjectivity um, kind of blind spot there as well. 
Michel, mm-hmm. when you began speaking, you used the word crucial. Mm. That cruciality is a lot of what is interesting to me. Why, <laughs> this is a huge question, why is it crucial? It's because, uh, you know, ignoring the, the blind spots or just uh, saying that it will be reduced uh, in, the, in the next future is generating a lot of uh, difficulties and paradoxes that are literally impossible to solve in the framework which is um, put by this ignorance. And I can just read you um, a, fa- a sentence by Erwin Schrödinger in, at the end of his book, Nature and the Greeks, mm. in which he put the problem very nicely. He said, okay, um, there is a feature less clearly and openly displayed, but of equally fundamental importance. It is this that science, in its attempt to describe and understand nature, simplifies this very difficult problem. The scientists subconsciously, almost inadvertently, simplifies his problem of understanding nature by disregarding or cutting out the, of the picture to be constructed himself, his own personality, namely the subject of cognizance. Inadvertently, so it, here, here again it's the blind spot because it's inadvertently, mm-hmm. the thinker steps back into the role of an external observer. This facilitates the task very much, but it leaves gaps, enormous lacunae, leads to paradoxes and antinomies where, whenever unaware of this initial renunciation, one tries to find oneself in the picture or to put oneself one's own thinking and sensing mind back into the picture. So you see that um, uh, Schrodinger is alluding to paradoxes. And the, the principle he identifies for these paradoxes is trying to find yourself in the picture, whereas you have withdrawn from the picture in order to make the picture possible. You, you want to make an objective picture of the world. In order to do that, you withdraw from this picture. And then you say, oh, now I want to understand myself in this way, namely in the objectivist way. And you, uh, you fail because it's just impossible. For instance, you want, there, are, there is a list of examples. Hmm. The, the, first, uh, the first example, of course, is the one uh, Alex was mentioning, namely, you want to understand subjectivity in objective terms. I, I intentionally posit that in, in this way in order for you to see the problem. Or you want to explain the onrise of consciousness uh, from an objective process that you describe, for instance, in the brain of someone. And you forget that in order to describe this objective process, you have had to withdraw with your own experience from the, very, from the process you are describing. And then you want to come back to this experience by a sort of uh, strange loop, I would say, trying to, to figure that sort of mirror of yourself and going back to, to where you started. 
But this is impossible because you withdrew yourself with the most uh, characteristic feature of all, which is precisely that you are seeing but not seeing, that you are understanding but not understood, and so on and so on. And therefore, you, of course, in this case, you have the famous heart problem that was uh, described and uh, formulated nicely by David Chalmers. But you have plenty of other cases which are exactly the same, uh, which have exactly the same origin. For instance, the measurement problem in quantum mechanics, typically, is exactly the same origin. Not that you ignore your experience, but that you ignore yourself as an agent, as, uh, for instance, Christopher Fuchs would, uh, would tell. You are an agent trying to organize a certain uh, experimental setup and predicting the result of your intervention and uh, then perceiving the outcome of the experiment. Okay, fine. But then you want to withdraw the agent from the process and say, when does the event, the, the, the measurement outcome, occur? Is it when, when a certain interaction between um, uh, one particle and the first particle of the experimental setup arises? Or is it when a certain complex thermodynamical process in the apparatus uh, takes place, or is it when you observe it um, by your eyes or, or even by your consciousness? This problem has been uh, raised uh, times and again, and I, to my knowledge, has never uh, uh, found a satisfactory answer, even though you find uh, plenty of interesting answers, there is not one answer that satisfied everyone. So the, the reason for that is precisely the blind spot, namely that you withdrew from the process what is the condition of possibility of the process, namely an embodied agent capable of experience and of prediction. <laughs> Since you have done that, you have extreme difficulties to recover the so-called phenomenon that is observed in the laboratory. And this is one more example. But I have a list of, of at least 10 examples, um, most of them from physics, I must say. That's, yeah, so I was about to ask um, whether we should, or I, I think it would be useful actually to step back because you both have a physics background. And then, and Michelle, for a long time now, you've been doing philosophy of science as well. A lot of it focused on physics. Um, so by way of background, I suppose, I'd love to know how you both came to appreciate phenomenology as an alternative uh, perspective or viewpoint to grapple with science in general. And then, you know, we'll get on to talking about consciousness, but a lot of it, like Alex, were you, you know, did this um, creep up in your mind first in terms of physics and quantum mechanics, or was this after you tra transitioned to neuroscience? How did you both come upon uh this as a uh, what seems to be a useful perspective. Mm, I don't tend to have stories worthwhile being the introduction <laughs> of a chapter, as as we read in all these <laughs> popular science books. Like when I was seven, I wondered. No, I, I was really naive, and I studied physics 
because I loved it, uh, perhaps in search of invariance, but maybe that's a <laughs> psychoanalytic insight of mine. Um, and I was happy doing pen and paper calculations and so on. Then by chance, I, I got to work in this neuroscience lab, Mathieu Louis in Barcelona. He, he was a, a portal for me to make this transition, but it was really, really by chance. And, and there, there, there I am um, studying fruit flies and this, observing these little creatures, making decisions and so on. And really nothing of what I had learned from physics would work there. I mean, I was hired as a physicist. So, you know, because I have a quantitative background that I could program and, and we think differently and so on. So, okay, increases diversity and brings new tools. That's great. But then I started having trouble just with these little creatures, the fruit flies. So I would say my first step towards phenomenology was coming across this um, notion, this word, the Umwelt, the, this German word, the Umwelt, which encapsulates um, the idea of the recognition that the fruit flies and worms and so on, they have their meaningful worlds. Welt in, in German means wor world. So they have these meaningful environments. And von Uxkel, who coined this concept, the zoologist, um, a century ago, contrasted it with uh, the physical surroundings. So I was puzzled. So, so here we have physical surroundings. What we're good at measuring and thinking about phys physical chemistry stuff around the, the maggot. But then, but then he's saying these, these guys have their own meaningful worlds. And so that was the first step. Okay, so they have it. So how are we going to possibly study it? Or at least how are we going to honor it, not just take it out of the picture, which has to do with the blind spot, because I could mm -hmm. say, who cares? I'm going to just imagine they're like these cybernetic robots. And you can still learn a lot thinking they're cybernetic robots for many reasons. And you've had great, great scientists in your podcast talking about the inside out perspective and so on, and the importance of action perception loops and so on. But in any case, the Umwelt and biology was my first step. But then if you go to li from life sciences to mind sciences, because you may want to understand behavior or neurobiology, but I suspect many neuroscientists get in neuroscience because they think, we think, we're going to understand the mind, whatever that is. And then I started realizing about the other, the other member of the equation, which was myself and, and this inability to grasp, grasp other creatures' umwelts and also the problem that I had recognized from physics to close the circle, that we, we practice very well this idea of a view from nowhere but it seemed that what was required was a view, a very concrete embodied view for the fruit fly itself and also the recognition that I was another creature studying the fruit fly. So it was slow cooking. It, was that I, it wasn't like I had the realization. Um, and I'm, I'm still, it's still ongoing. I'm still discovering um, and the many tricks that, uh, that fool myself in, in this path. And I think now neuroscience, just to say again what I said some minutes ago, I think now neuroscience of consciousness, many people still hate it, but offers a, another opportunity, as Michelle was saying, to come across this kind of dead end and, and then decide what we're going to do with the dead end. We're going to say, no, give us more tools and money. We'll just we'll just dig a tunnel through the wall of this, of this um, one-way street, for instance, or this, um, this dead-end street. Or we may actually go forward by pausing 
uh, I call this the halting problem. We can talk about it later. Oh, Just pausing. Yeah. Yes, let's pause and, and see what the fuck is going on. Why, why aren't we making sense? Maybe, maybe examine if the questions we're posing are, are correct or not. Forget about the answers. And then maybe go backwards. But this will lead us into other topics, which has to do with our notion of progress and so on, like mm -hmm. always forward and faster, right? But at least that just to say, I'm still puzzled by it. Uh, it's not that I've solved it or like I know it now. I'm constantly <laughs> catching myself in that loop. Mm. Michelle, did, did, did you have a, I think I remember you telling a story about you coming to some realization through meditation. Is that, uh, do I remember that correctly? Yes, but my, my interest for phenomenology was much earlier than that. And so I had, uh, you know, for instance, to come back to the time of my studies, when I was studying, um, in fact, medicine and physics, but especially physics, uh, I was absolutely fascinated, fascinated by, you know, the working of the mathematics that brought us amazing conclusions about the world. And yet I was... Um, you know, there was a, a, a little taste of dissatisfaction because I thought, okay, this is fine and this is beautiful. This is what I like, really to, to get through something that is uh, really behind uh, all, all the phenomena and all the appearances to, uh, to the reason of, for all, all the display. But um, I realized exactly what I was saying about Kant, namely all these things are made by our reasoning. It is our minds that are working in this direction. It is our minds that are constructing, uh, you know, a, a certain mathematical theory. And uh, from time to time, I, I was saying, okay, but let's come back to the concrete condition of that. Uh, let's come back to what, where I am now, at the moment where I am doing uh, painful calculations on, on paper. And, and, and uh, I, I was more and more interested in, in, in this immediacy of, uh, of the doings of someone who is uh, constructing a scientific thought. And one day I read uh, Edmund Husserl. I, I was just uh, 25 and I read the, the Cartesian Meditations of uh, Edmund Husserl. And, you know, I read only the three first pages, and I had an amazing experience. You know, uh, Husserl was speaking of the famous uh, phenomenological reduction, of the famous epoche, namely bracketing, namely suspension of judgment. Suspend any projection you can make with your mind, and come back where you are at this very moment. And suddenly I realized something. I realized that all the, you know, the conception of the world I had was just a thought. And I saw the thought and I saw the appearances as if they were on, on the flat screen, you know, no longer on in 3D hmm. uh, going through it and uh, finding something behind it just too deep okay so it was really a very strong experience just reading 
a few pages of Husserl. <laughs> Not everyone is doing this experience, <laughs> I must say, when reading Husserl. Some people uh, think, oh, it's complicated, abstract, and so on. In fact, it's not. It's just speaking of yourself at this very moment, not, so, not, not anything else. So yeah. later, you know, much later, I had a very similar experience, which is maybe even easier to explain and to, and to tell you. It was uh, uh, in, in Finland, I was in a conference of, uh, about the foundations of quantum physics, and um, in, a, in a class with a blackboard, there was some, someone, I don't remember who it was, maybe it was David Albert, and he wrote a, a long, long formula on the blackboard. It was just a quantum superposition, you know, um, a wave uh, function or a state vector, which is written in, in the form of a sum of terms. And this sum of terms is called a superposition. And then the, the guy said, Look, this is world one in which uh, the observer sees uh, spin uh, minus one half. And this is world two when the observer see sees the spin plus one half. And you see the world, he said. And I, I, I was puzzled and I raised my arm and said, no, I don't see worlds. <laughs> I see just... Uh, white marks on the blackboard. And, you know, it was, it was a silly remark in some way, <laughs> but it was my experience. My experience was that our reason tends to go through itself to see something that is completely uh, beyond any reach for, for uh, our usual intuition or our usual perception. And if we are a little bit lucid about that. It's just a work of reason that can be written in the form of white marks on a blackboard. And this is exactly, you know, I think it's, it's a process of phenomenological reduction. Suddenly you reduce all this extraordinary discourse about the world or maybe the multiverse to the fact that someone is saying that and someone is writing marks on a blackboard. How did the instructor so, uh, react to your comment slash question? Oh, it, there was no, it was puzzlement. I think. Okay. <laughs> Move up, suddenly, moved on, yeah. <laughs> exactly. So something like deflation, sudden deflation of, a, you know, of a huge speculation towards a concrete, flat, non-interesting fact, in fact. But I think this, um, this uh, remark uh, then pushed me to, to go in a completely different direction. I no longer uh, insisted in studying, for instance, the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics and went back to much more concrete, much less speculative interpretations, of which one of the best examples uh, nowadays is quantum Bayesianism, in which, the, for instance, the state vector is nothing, uh, it's no description of the world, but it's just a tool that we use to bet about 
measurement outcomes. So here you, you, you come back, you know, in the, in the most trivial environment you can think of, namely a laboratory with an agent, someone who is trying to guess something, to guess what will be the outcomes of the next experiment. So it's very, very down to earth, you know. And I think this down to earth uh, attitude is typical of phenomenology. But phenomenology is even more than down to earth than that, because you come back even earlier than, than just, you know, gesturing in the laboratory in the experience you have of all that. So you, you come to the flattest possible world you, you can imagine, namely just here and now. <laughs> But when you talk, it, it always sounds to me like a contemplative state of mind um, that seems, well, it seems incompatible with laboratory work. I mean, I struggle with it myself. And I, I was also wondering how abstract what we're saying How does that sound to Paul? Because actually we, we are trying to convey something which is the opposite, which is concrete, um, mm, the immediate felt presence of experience and so on. But it, it may sound super speculative. And I, I wonder whether people listening to this may say, what are they talking about? And at the same time, I think we're trying to talk about the, the very thing that's at reach, right? So there's another contradiction there. Um, and I'm not sure we're doing it. Are we doing a good job, or, or um, how does that sound? For how do you think this this sounds for the very practical mind who's thinking about mechanisms and processes? And um, when we talk about phenomenology in this sense, what do you think? Sorry, are you asking me or Michelle? Well, you, you, you specifically. Yes, um, yes. I've been swimming in your waters now for some time, and, and these concepts aren't new to me. So uh, um, I'm comfortable with the descriptions that seem, uh, well, still somewhat abstract, but I um, grasp onto them as well. And th this goes mm. back to me saying how much of this is implicit in a scientist's mind while they're working, and then you do the work anyway, because this this comes back to something I want to ask you both of how much the science changes with this perspective. If you mm. take this on board and and contemplate it seriously, maybe that might be uh, jumping the gun a little bit in our conversation. Um, I, I don't know if either of you wanted to add anything to that because I was mm. going to go back and, and, and talk about um, maybe an example from quantum mechanics. Um, you just yeah. talked about the, uh, the Bayesian uh, aspect, Michelle, but, but this phenomenological uh, perspective changes and michelle you, you use a lot of examples in this and we don't need to go through all the examples changes the interpretation of quantum mechanics and namely it switches it from a view of what's real in the world to uh, a view of what of probabilistic um measuring based on the mathematics i don't know if you want to elaborate that more or if that derails us in a direction we don't want to go yes of course Uh, yes, indeed. Uh, when you, when you, um, adopt this attitude, you, you are back into the situation of a scientist who tries to, to, to orient himself or herself into a, a completely unknown landscape. So it's when, you know, 
the problem of the beginning of quantum mechanics is that scientists, especially physicists, had a prejudice about what they were exploring. But they saw that this prejudice, namely that the world is made of particles having trajectories and, and, uh, and uh, intrinsic properties that are modified across time according to a certain law of nature and so on. All of these prejudices uh, could not be maintained against uh, the, in the case of, uh, of uh, microphysics. So they had to withdraw from that. And this withdrawal was already there at the very beginning of quantum mechanics. When, for instance, when uh, Heisenberg in 1925 uh, said, uh, I cannot uh, maintain the idea of a trajectory of an electron uh, across uh, space-time, namely around a nucleus of the atom. And I have to come back to observables. And when he did that, he suddenly completely reformulated quantum mechanics in terms of discrete uh, values that could be directly observed. What, what were these values? It, they were just the, the frequencies of a certain spectrum, uh, an electromagnetic spectrum. Okay, so according to Heisenberg, it was necessary to do this move in order to find the next step of physics, namely the, what, what, he calls, what he called for the first time quantum mechanics at that time. Then there was, uh, you know, discussion. Uh, for instance, um, Schrödinger reformulated the same theory in terms of the famous wave mechanics. And according to Schrödinger, at that time, um, in the, the wave function was describing a real wave out there. And so apparently, we came back from the very reflective attitude of Heisenberg to a referential and realist attitude of Schrödinger. But then again, Schrödinger realized that the wave function could not be said to, to describe a real wave out there, that it was in the 1950s, he even said that it could be used only uh, as a, a, a complex tool to calculate probabilities. And there was a sort of, you know, cyclic movement in the interpretation of quantum mechanics mm. in which from time to time people tried to rebuild a picture of the world out of quantum mechanics. And from time to time people withdrew from any picture of the world and said, okay, I cannot draw, draw a picture. And I just, I can just bet about what will be the reaction of what I am exploring to the type of actions I'm doing in it. And then you have people like uh, Chris Fuchs who try to, to over-speculate uh, in order to find the reason for which we cannot represent a world independently of us and we can only bet about the, the reaction of what we are exploring to our actions. And he said, the reason might be that, you know, the, the world is so packed that we cannot disentangle ourselves from, from it. And therefore, we cannot get a, a picture 
as if it were completely external to us. So this attitude of withdrawing to the elementary actions and the movements of our minds in a laboratory is maybe the, the indirect revelation of our situation of extreme implication and entanglement with the world we are trying to explore. So there is something that can be drawn from that and, 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 and which is not only uh, deflationary, you know, you can do a sort of inflation of speculation out of the necessity of deflation in order to understand quantum mechanics. Now, your question, Paul, is, is hard and it's very important. And I don't have a good answer because as much as I profess all of this, when it comes to how does that change what I actually do, hmm. um, I still don't know. And it's really hard to put in terms of a protocol as in, as in, a, as in a methods section of a paper. Um, but what it does is, is kind of creates in me a, a strange feeling of ignorance, a, a new feeling of ignorance. Um, it, it, it's refreshing, but it's also taunting a little bit because it, it's like there are these big what ifs that suddenly appear to mind. Like what if physics is nested in biology? It's like, oh, I always thought it was the other way around, but now, <laughs> now I'm starting to entertain this seriously. And, and that just turns everything upside down. That with respect to biology, but then when it comes to mind or consciousness, well, we, we neuroscientists often ask, how does the brain generate or produce consciousness? But then I start asking whether it does, but this is a taboo question. And so then I start looking for people with whom I can talk about those things within the scientific or philosophical community. And, and that then leads me, it's like a treasure hunt that leads me into a sort of archaeology of concepts. Like if I really want to take this seriously and nest physics in biology and even question that the brain is not producing consciousness as if there was some sort of smoke or epiphenomenon of a machine, then I need some theoretical guidelines. And, and so one starts looking for them. I usually, I usually don't find them in the current literature. So one needs to go to dead people often. Um, if one is lucky, one comes across somebody like Michel and I every now and then ask him for a kind of private session uh, and so on. And, and then, then I realized st having started as a theoretical physicist and then jumped into the, the waters of experimental and computational neurobiology, I find myself again being a kind of theoretical biologist, hmm. but not a theoretical biologist in, some, in terms of simulating differential, uh, differential equations to model a phenomenon, which is great, but trying to ask, well, what are the foundations of this new house? Because it's, it's this realization, like it's not about refurnishing the living room or rearranging the kitchen. It's like, oh, the, the foundations of this house that I was living on in um, seem to be shaky and therefore one must do something about it. <laughs> so that doesn't sound like very good news, but it's very exciting because at the end of the day, if the house falls, I'm not going to die. I mean, scientists, we don't have skin in the game in that sense. And actually this feeling of awe, one could say it's not even curiosity, this feeling of awe is super energizing. I mean, there's so many different ways that we can go. Um, maybe, maybe one way to move forward here because since we're talking about and i asked about you know how this would actually affect doing science 
So we could make the distinction between what I understand, and you guys can correct me, between phenomenology, which is in the business of describing Mm -hmm. uh, our subjective experience, and science, which is supposedly in the business of explaining and slash understanding. And so there is the question, which is directly related to how how to use this um, new perspective to move forward if you can. And Alex, you were just talking about how, you, you know, this is a, a struggle for you. I, I come back to, I, that's what I keep coming back to is, okay, let's say I buy in 100%. What does that change about what I am doing in terms of trying to explain whether it's brain function and or embodied cognition and or, mm-hmm. you know, some external um, you know, whatever consciousness is, if it's a relation between body and brain and environment and so on. Yeah. Um, so, so is there, you know, is there a way to move forward to, to join the descriptive aspect? If I explain that correctly, if I, uh, sorry, describe that correctly and the explanatory push of science. Hmm. Well, I just quote Goethe here and then hand it, hand it on to <laughs> Michelle. <laughs> to, Dead people. To do the work. Dead people. <laughs> no, but, but he says something very provocative and beautiful. Uh, he says something like the phenomenon is itself the explanation. And like the, the promise is that you should do proper phenomenology. And perhaps here we should pause and, and make a distinction between the word phenomenon because phenomenon sounds second class in biology, right? Because mechanism travels in first class and phenomenon is that thing that you more or less are going to describe, account, and then nail down with, with the mechanism. But, in, but phenomenology is not talking about phenomenon in that in, in, in that sense only, uh, as I understand it. So, so Goethe would say that, that if, if you can grasp, I mean, it, it all sounds very romantic, I must admit, like uh, there are other ways of doing science. Maybe they didn't flourish uh, or were so popular throughout history, but this way of doing science where you get kind of a direct perception, which is another taboo idea into nature, right? You don't need to submit it to the kind of Baconian, the friend Francis Bacon project of the new Atlantis 400 years ago. You don't need to chain it in the lab and just force it to spit its secrets. Um, it's like you can have a, a conversation with it. So it's a more ecological sensibility. And I know all that sounds like blah, 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 but at least that's the promise that, that sure, you can, and you can and you should try to explain things through mechanisms, but there's an, another understanding that's untapped if, and that you can practice whereby it's not only about what I call the M and M's, manipulate and measure. Um, it's about new new ways of perception. Even I mean, I could also mention Rudolf Steiner to add more freaks to the list. But um, th- these are the compasses I try to see. And, and I, again, Paul and Michelle, I don't know to what extent these insights can be copied and pasted into current neuroscience. I, I don't know if that's even possible. But, uh, but so, so I would not put it as a, as a, as a exercise where you first describe and then you, and then you explain, maybe these are parallel routes that can feed back from one to the other. What, what, what do you have to say, Michel? Cause I, I may be confusing things more here. Well, maybe, you know, people think that as you say, uh, explanations in terms of mechanisms is first class, namely it's mm. more fundamental, it's something deeper and so on than phenomena by themselves. Mm. Uh, yet when you, you look at the history of science and the history of the concept of explanation, you find that the concept of explanation has 
varied, has uh, changed a lot across history. And therefore, the phenomenologist could be interested in describing the way in which something can convince you that it's a good explanation. So you see here that phenomenology, in fact, is deeper than explanation because it shows what is the kind of feeling you must have in order to be convinced by an explanation. Now, let's come to the history of explanations. Uh, in Aristotelian times, uh, an explanation was something very deep. You have to find the ultimate cause of every process. The, the first cause, as Aristotle would say, and that was um, uh, interpreted by, by Christian uh, interpreters of Aristotle as God. Or, or you, you had to find the essence of things beyond the, the accidents, beyond the accidental uh, appearances. But then, you know, this idea of finding the ultimate cause and the essence of things was very much criticized uh, from the 17th century onwards. Uh, for instance, René Descartes said, oh, no, you uh, saying that you can explain a certain phenomenon by the essence of things is just pure, uh, you know, pure hand-waving. And we have to find special events that connect to each other uh, in time and that connect to the, to the process you want to explain. And this is called a mechanism. Mechanism comes from that, you know, comes essentially from René Descartes and uh, also uh, Robert Boyle. All this idea that you have to find something like cogs and wheels uh, moving uh, across space that explain by collisions the, mo the movement of something else. This is the idea of, me of mechanism. And then came Newton. And for Newton, this kind of explanation was no longer uh, something that he, he, he thought was possible to reach at all. And he said, in fact, what you have to do is only one thing, is to connect phenomena by a mathematical law and nothing else. All the rest is speculation. He called that uh, hypothesis. You know, uh, in Latin, hypothesis non fingo, namely, I don't conceive, I don't uh, speculate about hypothesis, about the mechanism of the, of the world, I, and I just connect phenomena by a, a set of mathematical laws. From that point on, Explanation, for instance, uh, in, uh, in Hempel's terms, was the so-called uh, nomological deductive um, type. Law. Namely, uh, you connect phenomena by a mathematical law. If a phenomenon is connected to a former phenomenon by a mathematical law, then you say it is, it is explained. So the concept of explanation is changing. And we have to be aware of this change. And I think in quantum mechanics, it's even worse, I would say. We don't explain why a phenomenon follows another one, because there is the famous indeterminacy. We just explain why we are prone to uh, predict this phenomenon by a certain probabilistic evaluation. 
So we explain probabilities, we don't explain phenomena. Okay, so the concept of, of, of explanation is to be explored and it, it is to be explored, explored uh, descriptively. We have to describe how scientists explain. So description is deeper than explanation. And let me add to this a uh, personal note. When I transitioned from physics to biology, uh, and I was in Rick Costa's lab uh, with his bold generosity towards what I wanted to, to do there, I constantly heard these words necessity and sufficiency in lab meetings. Look, I was a PhD in physics already. I never heard of them. You see, like the, the different species of humans that we inhabit a lab. I, I, and I was wondering, kind of like a, a person that goes to a remote island, like, why are, are, are they so concerned with this? And they are started realizing, okay, this is the game here in neurobiology. It's to finding this necessity and sufficiency equals causality, equals explanation, equals understanding. That's the formula. But, and there's some, some part of, you know, truth and benefit to it, but then the intellectual feast is much greater because, as, as Michelle was saying, we have effective cause, but then there's also formal causes. Like, what, what's Newton's law? F equals M times A. That, that's not a mechanism, right? So, I, I, again, I always live kind of in, with this split mind because I go back to when I was a physicist, and I'm, I don't feel I'm ever really a biologist, so I'm in no one's land. So, I realize, okay, there are at least these two causes, okay, final cause, People are so afraid. And so that was, they got rid of it in the end of the 19th century. But then apart from causation, there are a-causal a principles. And this is not just mental masturbation. There's a little bit of it, but, but these things have actual empirical consequences. And look, there's all these different ways of explaining things or accounting for things. And we're only using one. We're only using a spoon and we're not willing to use a fork or, or a knife. That's one thing. And then the other thing that I would add to this is that uh, as scientists, we have always this kind of totalizing aspiration, like, okay, we explain this, and then we explain that, and then we will explain that and that, and ultimately we'll explain everything. It's like, it's like a sequence that, that pushes you and pushes you, but how are you going to explain Bach? Or how are you going to explain a sunset? Again, it sounds very, it sounds very romantic, but perhaps the best way to explain certain things is through literature, for instance. Um, not to explain, but to grasp, right? To understand. It's through literature or um, through actual experience with your partner or whatever, right? And, and so, fine with explanation, but by two points to summarize. It, it's, there's a variety of flavors of explanation. They, they should all be pursued. And there's a moment where science starts scratching, let's say, the realm of the humanities. And it's very arrogant to say, look, we're going to use only the, the, the spoon and we're going to just, we can eat the whole world with the spoon. Because there, there are all these places where I don't think what's, what we really gain by saying, well, this molecule accounts for what? For, for love, for, for depression, for joy. I mean, we learned something, but is, is that really what we wanted to learn in the first place? when we started this endeavor. And so it's like an anamnesis, like, oh, that doesn't give me what I really wanted. Um, it's something to be valued. But again, um, uh, there was kind of a promise at the beginning that we could understand mind or life. 
And, and I just see that it can, becomes narrower and narrower and narrower, and we excel at necessity and sufficiency in neuroscience. But then, again, the big questions remain not just unanswered, but, but ill-posed. Okay, so this comes back to, um, so you used the word, there was a promise in the beginning. And my worry is that, and, and something I come back to in my own mind, first of all, I, I think the phenomenological approach can be personally transforming, right? And open your eyes to experience the world in a new light. Um, that has nothing to do with my science, though. And I, what I worry mm. is that a lot of... <laughs> so whenever you uh, create something, like a podcast, it's easy to tear it down and criticize it, right? And that, that's much easier than creating something anew. From what I glean, um, and this goes back to your halting problem, Alex, um, mm. So far, the vast majority of the work of a phenomenological perspective is to deconstruct rather mm. than generate. And there's a, a promise that it is going to generate. But as you're saying yourself, and, and you guys correct me if I'm wrong, that, that promise, I'm not sure if it's gotten off the ground or am I misinterpreting I asked the same question to Michelle a few weeks ago, actually, mm -hmm. like I, I'm all for it, but where, where I asked you, Michelle, where do you see the future of phenomenology and has it really failed or did it take off, but what happened with it? So I'll ask you that too <laughs> now. Yes, well, I, th I think um, uh, phenomenology cannot fail because it's a, a permanent need of uh, of um, you know uh, human beings who is seeking knowledge for instance you were giving a, a good example uh, alex that um, well you can you can uh, imagine someone who would say please teach me something about love i want to know something about love and then you can uh, you know as a scientist you would say okay the love is about oxytocin or love is about, uh, you know, uh, hormones and so on. And so you have the feeling that you have uh, told this person something about love. Now, this, this person might be a little bit puzzled by, by your answer, because maybe it was not exactly the kind of answer he or she was expecting. And then you, you, um, you offer her a novel. Uh, a novel about uh, a love story. And th then this person reads the book and uh, comes across the situations that are described by the, by the novel and uh, feels emotions by herself, feels emotions that are uh, triggered by the description and that, so to speak, simulate the characters of the novel. And then the person, this person could say, oh, now I have learned something important about love. Why? Because she has gone through the type of emotions that are typical of love. So you see that there are here two types of knowledge. The, the knowledge by uh, distancing, observing, manipulating, and the knowledge by acting, by being, by going through, by being uh, implied. 
And this, this kind of knowledge is the, I, I would say, the primary knowledge. Because in, in order to get the second type of knowledge, and the, the, the objectifying knowledge, you have to be implied somewhere. You have to be enthusiastic about science. You have to be uh, happy about discovering something about the world. So the, the initial type of knowledge is knowledge by implication, by, by self-commitment, by commitment, by being committed into something. So in this, if this is true, then phenomenology cannot be a sort of old-fashioned subject because it's exactly about commitment. It's about going through all these states and perhaps trying to describe them to other people in order for them to share some, some of this lived knowledge. So no, phenomenology is at the same time, um, you know, a strange knowledge because people tend to go through it without really paying attention to it. Uh, they tend to, um, to forget it. And at the same time, it's absolutely crucial because it's where you stand at this very moment and that you, for, you necessarily need it. I see, Paul, uh, I, I see, Paul, when I think I see where, where your question is coming from. And I also share the feeling that when, at least I'll talk, to, I'll, I'll talk about myself, when I, when I say you're right about these things and some colleagues of mine tell me, like, this sounds very destructive, but what do you bring forth? I mean, John Krakauer does this to me all the time. I appreciate it, you know, his kind of sweetly sharp remarks, like, that's great, but what are you going to bring to the table? Uh, and often I don't know what I'm going to bring to the table, but the, I think this effort of cleaning, cleaning up some mess can be positive, and even though it looks negative. And, and, and another thing, if I can use a metaphor, it's not really about, it's even not about getting rid of stuff. It's the opposite. Like, I think we have this kind of monoculture. I imagine like a vast field of genetically modified corn, you know, acres and acres and acres of necessity and sufficiency. And, and we're just saying, well, perhaps you we could have other things planted here if the weather allows and flowers and maybe insects pollinizing and so on. So actually it's, it's to go from a monoculture to, to something that's, that's richer. And also with respect to concepts and theoretical biology, it's also about enlarging the kind of the mind space, mm. having more, more, even more metaphors, for instance, more metaphors to think about the brain and a wider range, the, the role of imagination in science and so on. So yes, it has a side that looks like tearing apart things that I admit I didn't build. So it, it, it may sound easy, like, oh, here comes the, the new kid and just criticizes the city. But it's also an invitation, I would say, to to a, a more a richer and more plural way of thinking and, and, and doing and doing experiments and in, and in that sense back to umwelt the moment you realize what umwelt means uh, even if even if you apply a cybernetic approach then behavior that, that let me say something concrete at least i hope it's concrete i think you gain by studying behavior empirically because you don't see behavior animal behavior for instance as the outputs of um, organisms, what the mouse did, but what the mouse is trying to perceive. It's, you know, behavior, this idea of behavior as the control of perception. And that's still far, far away from granting them subjective experience or consciousness. But now, because you have this animal-centric perspective, I think you can do better research. So that's something tangible. And 
Now, in consciousness studies, I know many people are critical of integrated information theory, but look what happens when you start your theory of consciousness from phenomenology. And as, as far as I know, it's virtually the only modern attempt to do that. All the rest start with a what I say, like a, a metaphor turned into mathematics and then with some covert metaphysics. They all start from abstraction. So, so what I'm saying is they're concrete examples of trying to implement that phenomenological path. And, and one can see whether one agrees or not. It's a different thing or it has to be tested and so on. But there are concrete fruits along the way. And, and again, I think it's a more joyful trip than kind of a, a train crossing this gray monoculture that can, I mean, you may love eating corn, but come on, <laughs> not for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, knowing that we live in Spain and we have jamón and tortilla. So that, that's, that's in a way what I'm trying to say. <laughs> Michel, did you want to add something? Up? Yes. Also, also of course, I, I can bring uh, the, the issue of neurophenomenology in, in this discussion because, um, because, you know, from the very beginning of uh, the discipline of neurobiology, the issue was not only to find about the anatomy and physiology of the brain, it was also to find about the functions of the brain. And the functions of the brain were supposed to, to have something with, to, to have something to, to do with uh, the mind. So how can you find the uh, mental functions of parts of the brain, if not by uh, asking people what they feel or what they experience when uh, they have this area of the brain cut off or when they have the, this area of the brain uh, stimulated. So the, you know, the input of say, uh, cognitive psychology and other disciplines that try to uh, make some sense of what people do and live in their experience uh, is absolutely crucial for neurobiology. It, it's not something that can be neglected. And the idea of, of the Varela's idea of neurophenomenology was just an amplification of this method that has been uh, used uh, since the very beginning of neurobiology. Namely, okay, since you use to ask people what they experience when they have uh, such uh, brain area stimulated or cut off, then try to ask them in a very detailed way, the same kind of detailed way as phenomenology is using in its description of lived experiences. But when so I'm sorry this, if this is a very simplistic or naive notion that has been defended in neurophenomenology, but isn't that subject to the same constraints of the uh, phenomenological viewpoint? When I ask someone and they tell me something, never mind whether they're confabulating or their language isn't up to par to communicate that, it's 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 my experience of it that is um, foremost, and the third person objective experience of scientific endeavor uh, still fails to, to then um, there, there's still a, there's still a primary failure of phenomenology. There's still a primary phenomenology uh, that cannot be overcome because it is my subject, my subjective experience. So I mean, it's the same thing mm -hmm. as when you look at a brain 
Yeah. Uh, it's no more than your perception. Well, the, your subjective experience is, is primary of the brain. And so, my, you know, like, not to belabor the point, but Alex, I, I think if I was still running a neuroscience lab, this in some sort, in some sense would uh, stop me. And you said it invigorates you. In some sense, it would stop me wanting to, to proceed with, with my experiments because every experiment would then be subject to be interpreted as my subjective experience of um, measuring those observables. And so I wouldn't feel as though I was actually moving forward in explanation and understanding, even though I know we have already covered those topics. Mm. Yes, I don't think we're advocating for subjectivism. This is not a form of subjectivism. Right, right. I'm not saying you're saying that, but just to, to be aware, in the same way that you could say like, Einstein relativity is not about relativism. We're not talking about everything goes or like, let's see what people have to say. But at the same time, we're saying um, in the same way that you look, we, we spend so much money and so much engineers and, and, and funding agencies to build better measurement tools. I think what Michelle and I, I try to convey here is that there's also scope and uh, to build better observation tools, which is precisely us, um, observation of our own experiences. And I think that is th that's where neurophenomenology comes into play. Like imagine we could have, well, Christoph Koch um, calls it the mind scope, right? Well, <laughs> it's really a brain scope, but imagine we also had a mind scope and now we put them together and then we ask the brain scope, what, what, what do we see with the brain scope and, and what do we see with the mind scope? And then each other constrains the other. Um, uh, so it's a dance and it's a difficult dance between first person and third person because they seem they're built to kind of annihilate each other. But there's this feeling that, well, we tried introspection in the 19th century and it failed. And, and so, come on, and gut feeling. And also there's this propaganda. Let me say it this way. Like our senses constantly deceive us and, and we should just distrust anything that has to do with our own experience. Well, yes and no, because at the end of the day, abstractions are equally dangerous, if not more. So I don't want to... Um, lay down this as, as if it was a battle and see whether first person or third person wins or mechanism or description wins. Again, it's like there's this huge um, field that's, that's not very ex uh, explored or exploited that has to do with taking first person experience more seriously. Now, in physics, if you're starting throwing stones or electromagnetism, I guess you could do, with, you could do away without that for for decades or centuries. Uh, it, it was only when, as I understand, when we went to look at these kind of micro energetic scales of quantum mechanics or these really, really, like there, there we, we kind of come, then we realized like in, in Truman's, in, in, in what is in Truman's show, like when he's swimming with the boat, it's like, oh, swim, swim, and then rowing, sorry. And then he discovers there are these painted walls, right? That's the sky. So that, that in a way happened in physics. Now, Again, when, when we do biology and, and psychology and neuroscience, if we really want to understand the mind and consciousness, I think this, these kind of paradoxes come, a, come across more, more vigorously and, and sooner. And, and then we are perplexed. And the usual way forward is the way forward. is more technology, more resolution, more connectomics, more big data, and so on. And I'm not saying let's not do that. I'm saying what about the other thing? Perhaps it's more needed than than ever before.
um, this dance. And, and just one more thought here, and, and very coarse, but like the foundations of science 400 years ago, where about this business of saying, well, let's concentrate on, on this first, which is what we can make sense of objectively, and let's postpone that other thing for later. But then the later never arrives, and, but it keeps up popping again. And, and that's what phenomenology tries to, to bring to the table. The fact that the, the subjective aspect, um, it, it's gonna, always going to be there. It's always going to be popping its head and we can just kind of bang it again, but it will pop up somewhere else. Um, so we better take it, uh, take it more seriously and, and embrace it. It's not a nuisance, it's not noise um, uh, to get rid of. Um, it's a treasure. I think it's fascinating. Um, and it connects us, again, it connects us with, with hum being a human being. Like you, you're saying before, Paul, that um, you, something like, well, when I'm at work in the lab, I want to do some things and then, and then maybe later. Well, you weren't saying that, but something of the sort of, when it's time to do experiments, let's do it. And then maybe we can think about those. But uh, it's hard for me to live in this kind of split mind where, um, you know, when we have a pet at home, but then we sacrifice animals in the lab routinely. You know, it's very strange. Or where we look for mechanisms in the lab, but then, but then in the weekend we we, we look we look at at, ch at children play and we wonder about you know love and, and joy. Uh, we we live with in a split mind, and <laughs> I'm rambling here. But it, what's the future of science? I wonder. Is it a future where it becomes? more and more technical, more and more um, technological, and less and less disembodied, and less and less human in a way, which is some of the topics that you explore brilliantly in your podcast with respect to AI. And oh, is that the future of science that's coming? Is that the future of science that we want? Or we can recover kind of the human aspect um, and insert it in science and still have the enterprise working? I don't know if it's orthogonal, but uh, to what you were just saying, Alex, but you know, a while back you mentioned, and Michelle described when you read a passage in a novel, let's say, and Alex, you made the push. Of course, there's a modern, I don't know if it's fringe push to connect science and humanities, but there's a lot of um, people saying, well, we need to like look at novels because that is how you understand in this example, love, right? Um, however, I inherently distrust language. I, of course, language is one of the crucial factors that makes humans so, quote unquote, successful and for us to be able to, commu to communicate. I know that my own language, I'm not thinking about what I'm saying before I'm saying it. It's sort of tumbling out of my mouth, right? And through some subconscious uh, process. But everything that we've been, you know, this whole, uh, the podcast is based on language and everything we've been communicating is language. And a lot of the phenomenology descriptions are in are based on language and of course there can be a lot of miscommunication and misunderstanding about the terms that we use but somehow love is still communicated right and to go back to that example but i'm wondering if you see language uh as a barrier or since i mistrust language as the best way to describe uh and and yet language is necessary for phenomenological descriptions unless we go back to mathematical equations, which seems antithetical to the phenomenological approach. So I'm just wondering what, how, how you see language interacting or where you situate language. In fact, uh, you know, uh, I, I would 
like to quote uh, a little, very short sentence by Wittgenstein in his book, Uncertainty. Uh, he says, doubt presupposes certainty. <laughs> doubt presupposes certainty. Namely, you cannot not doubt everything because in that case, you would even doubt uh, what you are saying about doubt. You cannot doubt all of your lived experience because if it were the case, you would also uh, doubt the conviction you have that experience is unreliable. You know, there is a sort of, uh, of mm -hmm. a feedback loop in this case. So you have to rely on something. You have to rely on, you know, your present conviction, or you have to rely on the faithfulness of language to convey your your thoughts or emotions and so on. And then when, when you have done this work of trust, then this trust can come, but only secondarily, as uh, a way to, to, um, uh, you know, to discriminate between what can be trusted and what cannot be trusted. But universal distrust is impossible because you would not even trust your distrust in this case, you know. So what about language? What about language? I think, um, you know, language has many functions. The function of, you know, uh, making uh, descriptions, making reference to things that are objectified and that you, can, you want to, to convey to other people, what you want to convey to other people is the following idea. If you do the same as I'm doing now, then you will see something that is similar to what I'm seeing. You know, this is exactly that what, that you want to say. Um, and uh, in phenomenology, language has a very different use. You don't refer to something that everyone can see. But you, you try to take people back to with, where they are. It's very, almost paradoxical. Usually in language, you, when you evoke something, you want to push someone far from where uh, he or she is doing now. For instance, when you, when you say, um, please think of a rose. This rose is not present. And yet, when you are pronouncing the word rose, you are suddenly evoking something that is far away and that the person can uh, evoke in her mind, for instance. Now, when you try to make a phenomenological description, the process is the other way around. You don't want to push someone far from where she stands, but you want to bring back this person at, in the very situation in which she is at this very moment, and suddenly recognize in your words something she is living at the very moment in which she is reading you. It's something exceptional. The usual language, the usual use of language is completely different from mm. this one. But this, uh, this is an alternative use of language, which is 
very interesting because alternative and which uh, can be added you know to the to the functions of language which were um, listed by uh, by John Austin for instance namely the the locutionary uh, illocutionary and perlocutionary functions namely the function of uh, referring to something that can be seen locutionary the function of um, doing things with words namely for instance when i ask you when i tell you here is uh, here is money you don't know that this is money but because i have said that you can recognize this piece of paper as money this is locutionary and also there is perlocutionary namely you know showing showing someone what she should do in order to satisfy your uh, expression that you are emitting at this very moment for instance when if i tell if i ask you please can you bring me a piece of paper and a pencil then i use language to to uh, invite you to do something for me this is the famous perlocutionary uh, function of language now what i described the language of phenomenology is a fourth type with respect to these three types mm. i call it auto or self locutionary because it brings you back where you are i i do not tell you uh, fetch me a pencil i do not tell you this is a piece of money but i tell you you know realize where you are now at this very moment realize the flavor of what you are feeling realize the 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 taste of um of the sounds of my words and so on and so on so i want to bring back where you are instead of pushing you far from where you are and this is why i called this uh, function of language which is typical of phenomenology the self locutionary uh function let me finish then with this question but i know that any question i ask could you know take a long time so you both have a background in the hard uh, third person objective sciences uh and you've come to appreciate uh the, the phenomenological approach and i'm wondering to what degree you ascribe that uh, your developed appreciation to for phenomenology i'm wondering what role the that original if you i don't know what's original when we come out of the womb but our you know our original um training for third per person objective science is that necessary to truly appreciate the phenomenological aspect and do they serve as mutual constraints in your minds or what role does that for lack of a better term original third person objective science play mm -hmm. yeah. ah. <laughs> well one needs to unlearn it uh, or, or unlearn the other skill. Uh, at least that's how I feel about it. It's not that you unlearn and you forget the objective method, but it's like another sport that uses your leg in a different way, right? Um, it takes some time and then I'm not sure whether you're so good at practicing both. So I'm not sure it actually learns, but maybe if I can use kind of a hard analogy, it, it would be like one person doing 
drugs for a long time and then being able to appreciate much better what it is not to drink right and 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 even allowing oneself to drink or take psychedelic substances from time to time it's like the ability to switch from one part to the other well being being well immersed and even a true believer in the view from nowhere um, at least in my case allows me to appreciate much better what this phenomenological approach is offering, but not rejecting. I I want to convey also an integrative vision, not rejecting or dismissing the view from nowhere, but just like a tool, being more mindful as to where it can be used and why and where it fails and what can one do about it. Mm. Yes, I I entirely agree with uh, Alex, actually. Um, I, I think that uh, in a society in, in which, uh, you know, the extreme objectification that is the condition of possibility of science uh, would not have been invented and uh, imposed on, on many communities of, uh, of uh, workers and uh, thinkers, then phenology would have been a matter of course. It would not even have been a, a, a special issue, a special topic, a special philosophical discipline, and so on. It would have been just life, you know, ordinary life. But in a civilization in which uh, objectification has become a value, in which it has sometimes claimed exclusivity for itself, phenology can be a compensation or just a, you know, a counterweight, a necessary counterweight, not to, to challenge the necessity of objectification, but to complete it, to, to make it, uh, you know, to complete it with its very background condition of possibility, the famous blind spot we were speaking of before. The, the thing that we no longer see when we see too much, uh, you know, the objective uh, side of, uh, of appearances. And so phenomenology is a cure to the excess of objectification. It's also a counterweight. It's also also an exercise, as uh, Alex told, told us, it's an exercise of mindfulness. We have, just have to be mindful about where we started the inquiry where we tried to begin something that was objectification. Objectification is a process that was imposed on our minds, and therefore we have to be clear about where it started from and what, are, uh, its, uh, what is its source. And its source is in experience, and I think the second ingredient an ingredient that is also in experience is desire, desire for, for something more than we have at this very moment, desire for uh, understanding, desire for possession, desire for everything that is beyond us. But, but you know, uh, here again, there must be an antidote to an excess of desire, and phenology can be this antidote. Paul, oh, there, 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 there is a converse version of your question, which is, in a way, I'm sorry if I'm, I feel I'm taking the role of the, of the interview, but we said that wasn't an interview, that's, that's more a conversation, but, but like, we could also ask, 
And is it important or to what extent learning first-person perspective first um, can be revealing or insightful about the, the objective approach? And, and there is a real-world experiment running right now, I would say, um, <laughs> led by His Holiness the Dalai Lama, whom, as I understand, um, is, is having... Buddhist monks, like the real deal, the real Buddhist monks, not mindfulness from six to seven on Tuesdays, but the real deal, I have, have them also be fluent with, with the scientific uh, approach. And so I'm very curious to see what, what, what that leads to in mm. terms of new insights and new ways of doing science, because this is the other way around. Um, so <laughs> whatever, it's, it's a very interesting Cross pollinization um, that can be can take place in both directions. Well, guys, this has been a, a very pleasant experience for me, and I desire that we do it again sometime, or at least that you uh, have great evenings and continue uh, to live great lives. So, thanks for taking the time, and uh, I'm sorry we didn't get to 200 other questions. Thank you. Thank you so much for doing this, Paul. I really, I really like listening to your to your episodes. And I think you're doing a, let me just say in ending, you're doing a great service to the neuroscience community writ large because, well, now it's more popular to have these forums, but um, we, need, we need arenas where, where these ideas can be aired and beyond the, the lab meetings and, and laboratory discussions. And I think you're doing a great service to, to neuroscience. Thank you. Thanks, Alex. Thank you. Brain Inspired is a production of me and you. I don't do advertisements. You can support the show through Patreon for a trifling amount and get access to the full versions of all the episodes, plus bonus episodes that focus more on the cultural side but still have science. Go to braininspired.co and find the red Patreon button there. To get in touch with me, email paul at braininspired.co. The music you hear is by The New Year. Find them at thenewyear.net. Thank you for your support. See you next time. The stair-